and thank you for tuning in today. Welcome to our latest National Governors Association School Leadership Hot Topics podcast. I'm Seth Gerson, Program Director for K-12 Education at NGA. And today I'm excited to be joined by Jason Dougal of the National Center of Education and the Economy and National Institute for School Leadership. Today, Jason will share lessons and spotlight exemplars in principal development from high-performing education systems from across the globe. Please note that we recently released nine other webinars and podcasts on school leadership, including with the American Institutes of Research, Education Commission of the States, New Leaders, the Learning Policy Institute, nationally recognized school leadership experts, Dr. Paul Manna, Dr. Steve Tozer, and Dr. Jackie Wilson, and Governor's Education Policy Advisors and Education State Chiefs from Delaware, Louisiana, and Tennessee. You can find these webinars and podcasts at the NGA Education webpage on the NGA website. These podcasts are supported by and in partnership with the Wallace Foundation. The Wallace Foundation works to support principal and school leader preparation, development, and support across the country. Their Wallace Knowledge Center has multiple resources, tools, and reports on state strategies for school leadership, including Wallace's new report outlining the impact of effective principal pipelines on student achievement. You can find these resources at wallacefoundation.org or through a direct link on our NGA Education webpage. With that, let's dive into the conversation with Jason. Jason, it's so great to have you with us. If we could start off, if you could just tell us briefly about your background and the work of the National Center on Education and the Economy and the National Institute for School Leadership. Uh, sure, first, uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, my story is an interesting one because I took a more circuitous route into education than most. I went to Swarthmore College and then UPenn Law. I was actually um, a lawyer for many years before uh, entering uh, the education space. Uh, I was actually a mergers and acquisitions attorney in New York City, so I couldn't get further from the background of most folks in education policy. Um, but through a series of quite fortunate events, I met Mark Tucker at the National Center on Education and the Economy, and um, he was uh, just crazy enough to, to hire me um, to be his general counsel at NCEE. And at the time, a, a large part of what NCEE did was comprehensive school reform through a, a program called America's Choice. And I worked for America's Choice for years, until I uh, stayed within NCEE, but moved on to become the executive director of our Excellence for All program, uh, which was a pilot program, a five-year pilot, working with high schools uh, in four states across the country, uh, trying to implement uh, essentially a, uh, a proficiency-based high school leaving certificate rather than a diploma, which is mostly a measure of attendance. Um, and uh, that was uh, an incredible experience and uh, one that uh, I learned a ton from. Uh, and quite frankly, it's the, although our pilot only lasted five years, uh, some of the legacy of that work uh, still continues on in Arizona, in the state of Arizona, where they passed legislation to create what's called the Grand Canyon Diploma, uh, where uh, students can still gain a proficiency-based diploma by taking uh, Cam University of Cambridge uh, exams. 
um, that give them automatic uh, entrance into Arizona State University. So it's a, it's a really interesting program. Uh, from there, I became the chief executive officer of the National Institute for School Leadership, or NISL. And NISL is now the largest uh, program of NCEE focused on executive development for teachers, school leaders, primarily principals, uh, and district leaders, primarily superintendents. And I served in that capacity for about four years before recently becoming the executive vice president of NCEE. So that's my journey. Uh, if I could just take a moment, I'll just describe a bit of what NCEE does and what NISL does within NCEE. NCE, for those who know it, probably know it as an organization that's really focused on research and benchmarking the highest performing educational systems in the world. We do that research to draw lessons from top performing education jurisdictions that can be applied here in the U.S with an aim towards improving public school education um, and bringing about broadly shared prosperity. Uh, essentially, our approach is really one that's adapted from a form of industrial benchmarking, which uh, David Kearns, the former CEO of Xerox, uh, made popular back in the 1980s uh, when Xerox was, quite frankly, struggling in competition and business competition with uh, many Japanese competitors. And rather than um, just take a beating in, uh, in that competition, um, David Kearns asked his engineers to get on a plane and go over and see what it was that was being done in those uh, Japanese companies that were beating the pants off of Xerox at that time. Uh, to better understand how Xerox could compete going forward. And we take that same approach. We do our benchmarking not with an eye towards, well, how can we replicate what we see in a high-performing jurisdiction like Finland or Singapore? Uh, because, of course, those contexts are very different. But rather, how can we glean the concepts that are driving their high performance adapt them to our context and quite frankly beat the competition right that's what that's what xerox was trying to do that's what businesses do when they benchmark against each other and it's certainly the approach we take uh, here at ncee nissel takes a sort of similar approach uh with regard to leadership development looking at uh, leadership development programs uh from myriad sources from looking at professional military education to business schools. Uh, we've had former deans and professors from Harvard Business School, Stanford Business School, the Sloan School at MIT, uh, all advising us on our executive development programs. Uh, we've benchmarked against businesses, leading corporate universities, law, medicine, you name it. And all of that is put together so that our executive development programs combine the best of what we've learned internationally with regard to education and leadership development. Thanks, Jason. And you mentioned uh, Mark Tucker, and I would just say to our, our listeners, as much as we're talking about principals and school leaders today, definitely go look at the NCEE website. Uh, Mark has written for many, many years throughout his career on, on teacher development and support, 
as well as ensuring students are ready for post-secondary in the workforce. Just a long career, a recognized career of, of groundbreaking report, reports in those areas. In terms of research, if we can move into that just as a threshold issue, we hear a lot that principles matter. If you could talk a little bit about the research about why principles are so critical to student, teacher, and school success, and how have you seen in your role the, the role of the principal uh, evolve over time? Sure. Well, I think the the seminal study that's always cited when people ask about the importance of uh, principles is a Wallace Foundation uh, research study that showed that principals have the second largest in-school impact on student performance, second only to, not surprisingly, teachers. Um, and uh, that study uh, suggested that principals have as much as 25% uh, of the impact on uh, student performance. Um, and quite frankly, I, my guess is most people wouldn't be surprised by that. Intuitively, we know that leadership has a tremendous influence on any organization, be it a school or any other. Um, and we often attribute a strong culture to great leadership, be that in a, in a company or in a school. And while that's certainly true, when people talk about things like a strong culture, it can feel like something of an amorphous concept, uh, right? And so it's important for us uh, at NISL and at NCEE to study leadership as a discipline in and of itself just like you'd study any other discipline like, like math or, or history, uh, so that it can be um, broken down into component parts and thought of as, a, as something you can improve upon, not something you, that you're innately born with or not. I think often there's this misnomer that uh, leadership is just so, something people have or don't have. Um, and even when you think of something as amorphous as culture, people will define culture as sort of the aggregate of the norms and behaviors of an organization or a society. And if you really look at it deeply, again, as a discipline of leadership, behaviors are, are a product of real actions. They're a product of incentives and structures and supports that are put in place within any institution, including a school. And so, of course, principals as leaders of schools have a tremendous influence over the incentives, the structures, and supports in a school. That is, in a nutshell, why principals are so critical. But I want to just make sure when I use terms like incentives, structures, and supports that your listeners will understand what I mean by that. Um, you know, in a lot of schools, uh, we talk about educating all, all students, right? All means all. We want the best for all students. But unfortunately, often there are incentives that work in the opposite direction of what we're, we're trying to achieve. I'll give you a quick example. In many schools, the most senior and most accomplished teachers get their pick of which classes they want to teach. And so they'll often pick, uh, you know, the most uh, advanced classes with students who come the most prepared and most dedicated to improvement, right? So you have your best teachers working with your most prepared students. And who ends up getting assigned to your students who are furthest behind or, or who are 
special needs students or English as second language students. It's your novice teachers, right? Um, what if you, as a school leader, uh, thought about changing that incentive, creating incentives for your best teachers to want to take on the classes of students who were least ready and furthest behind. And some might say, well, that sounds a little fanciful. I come from a law firm, right? The hardest cases that were brought to our firm were taken on by the best lawyers. The most experimental surgeries are taken on by the best surgeons. There are incentives, and they're not always monetary, but there are incentives in true professions for those who are most accomplished to take on the hardest cases, right? The, the toughest surgeries, the students furthest behind. And I'll come back to that in a moment, but I wanna make sure we understand. That's, that's what I mean when I talk about incentives. Talk about structures. There are various ways in which, here's just a quick example, a principal um, can, can change or set a master schedule, right? The master schedule uh, is not something that is ordained from on high. It, it is actually malleable and, and people can think differently about it. In the jurisdictions that we've studied overseas, they often, in an attempt to create more time during the day for teachers to work together, uh, increase class size. But that's not the only way to do it. In fact, we're working with a bunch of superintendents and principals in Pennsylvania who are finding other ways to structure their days to create time for teachers to work together. As just one quick example, there are schools in Pennsylvania who are now uh, every six days, so almost once per week, they're scheduling all of their specials together, meaning art class, music class, et cetera, on the same day so that the core content teachers have a full day, almost weekly, in which they can work together. And they can work together on lesson planning, on giving consistent feedback and marking consistently student work. They can also use that time to give one-on-one -on -one or small group tutoring sessions to students who are behind, or engage with parents uh, to make sure that, that, they, that parents are aware of what's going on in school and aware of how they at home can support their students. So there are ways in which structures can be built that dramatically change the way teachers work. And lastly, I referred to supports. Um, and the supports, as I was talking about creating that time, and I was talking about creating incentives, Think about um, the way in which a school could be structured so that your best teachers actually have more time when they're not in front of students. Not that they're fully away from teaching, not that they're in a coaching role per se as a full-time job, but rather they're given 20% or one-third of their time uh, on a weekly basis where they can spend that time supporting newer or struggling teachers, being able to enter that teacher's classroom and observe them and give them feedback or have that teacher come see that more accomplished teacher teach and debrief with them. All of these are ways, quite frankly, that you can greatly improve what you're doing in a school 
without spending a nickel more than you're currently spending. Nothing that I just described in those incentives, supports, and structures would have to cost a school or a district any more money. I really appreciate your insights on the principal's role and um, their impact that they can have on a student and teachers and, and schools. And I want to jump for our listeners to your work that you've done at NCEE on comparing high-performing countries and high-performing systems around, around the world. Um, so 2017, NCEE released a, a really a major report comparing the lead uh, lessons and principal development from high-performing education systems, providing an overview of exemplar school leadership systems from across the globe. What were the primary findings in the report and what implications from that report do you think were in there for governors and state policymakers? Sure. Um, there was a wonderful report well, with the help of Learning First and Ben Jensen, and I, I just wanted to, to mention that organization and Ben specifically because um, he did some incredible work on that research in partnership with us here at NCEE. I think the handful of takeaways um, all can fit under the umbrella of leadership is a continuum. And I'll talk about uh, some ways in which I mean that. Leadership, you know, too often is thought of and supporting leaders is thought of when people enter into the principalship or maybe into the assistant principalship. Um, but what we found from the highest performing jurisdictions, and that was a study that focused on Hong Kong, Ontario, Singapore, and Shanghai, um, that all of those jurisdictions started to think about leadership before leaders were even teachers. What I mean by that is it starts with really rigorous standards for entering the teacher profession. And that once teachers do enter the profession, there are plentiful opportunities for professional learning throughout their careers. What first and foremost that means is only outstanding teachers who can coach and support their peers are ever even going to be get, get a chance to become principals. Um, but it doesn't just start and end there. Future leaders in these systems, future principals, uh, future system leaders, they're not self-selected. And too often here in, in our country, um, principals are self-selected. Teachers who want to make more money decide to go and get their, their um, principal certification. Um, there are usually dozens and dozens of programs of varying quality within a state that a teacher can go to to get that certification. Um, and unfortunately, often when uh, boards are looking to hire principals or, or a uh, or superintendent is looking to hire principals, they don't have uh, a robust pool of qualified candidates. So too often, our school leaders are self-selected. That doesn't happen in these other jurisdictions. From the teacher ranks, the folks who are in leadership roles are spending their time identifying those teachers who they view having potential to be future leaders, and they're grooming them while teachers for future leadership positions. They're giving them in-job experiences, maybe to lead the professional learning in that school or in a cluster of schools 
of their peers, right? So you're getting an opportunity not only to give that person some leadership experience, but you're also getting an opportunity, quite frankly, as a current leader in that system to see how that teacher responds, right? It's a, it's a continuous evaluative system because teachers are constantly being given opportunities to lead their peers. And so uh, current leaders are constantly being given opportunities to observe whether uh, that teacher has what it takes to be a potential school leader or system leader. Um, but it doesn't even end there. Once those potential leaders are identified as those who, who these systems feel are definitely your future principals and maybe future full uh, education system leaders, they're given intensive out-of-school professional development opportunities. So you've got in-school opportunities with your peers, but then you get these sometimes six or 12-month intensive professional development programs where those future leaders are actually taken out of their school and working maybe in another school or having opportunities to, uh, to go abroad so that they can see a whole different uh, education system to give them a fresh perspective on their own system. And then once they are principals, the continuous learning keeps going, right? It doesn't end when you reach the principalship. There are career ladders, career opportunities where now as principal, you get to support those who come after you um, and also get supported by the principals and um, system leaders who came before you. So it's just a constant embedded system of professional learning opportunities, leadership opportunities, and um, opportunities to evaluate uh, everyone in the system. But when I say evaluate there, what I'm talking about is real professional judgment, just like a lawyer would be evaluated by his peers or the partners in a law firm, or a doctor is evaluated by the other doctors with whom he or she works in a hospital setting. Um, that's a very different type of evaluation than what most states have. So in terms of what are the implications, I think, you know, the implications for a governor or state policymaker are, you know, relatively obvious given what I just said. It might seem odd when you're talking about leaders to, to start with uh, teachers, but you got to focus on the quality of teacher preparation and the teachers coming into our schools. And you're not going to be able to increase the rigor of um, the admission standards to teacher prep institutions if you haven't changed the job and the pay for teachers on the other end. For students who have options to be engineers and doctors and lawyers and architects or teachers, they're going to be looking at what's the pay, what sort of working environment am I going to be in after I graduate? So schools need to change. Schools need to be places where teachers are treated as professionals, where they have career ladders, where they have opportunities to progress in their career, both to be mentees and eventually mentors uh, within their profession and get opportunities for leadership. And I think for governors, especially in state policymakers, they have to consider the impact their current policies have on making that type of system work. As just a very quick example, you know, an accountability system that's driven by 
multiple choice machine scored low level skill exams is not going to foster the type of professional learning environment for teachers that I just described. So if you want to build a leadership system, right, to, to get the, the best school leaders, you have to start to think about how all the incentives in the system from accountability to class size requirements to early childhood are influencing uh, what happens. And so, you know, I would really uh, recommend highly that anybody listening to this take a look at the Kerwin Commission recommendations that just were released from the state of Maryland, and they were just passed into law just this past April 2019, uh, in which you can see just how all of the recommendations are mutually supportive to create a, a true system in which all the component parts are designed to work together to push education forward. Thanks, Jason. Those are great recommendations. And so you talked a little bit about Hong Kong, Singapore, Shanghai, Ontario, these countries that have invested in building cohesive systems of principal development and support. And for our listeners, we'll have attached to the podcast, the Repairing to Lead report that Jason was just talking about, the major findings of. I want to move to one of our, our last questions here. Um, where do you see your work and the work of NCEE, the work of NISL, and the field headed next? What are you most excited about? Yeah, I think um, for us here at NCEE, um, our work is really focused on, and you probably won't be surprised after hearing the, the, my answers to the first few questions, on working with a vertically aligned set of leaders. And what I mean by that is working with state leaders who are focused on policy, uh, working with um, chief state school officers, districts, uh, their executive teams and superintendents and principals and teachers so that there is true coherence in terms of the incentives driven by policy and the practice inside of schools that is matched up to what those policy drivers are trying to get to. 20 years ago, principals really were expected to be administrators, right? They were expected to make the buses run on time, stay within budget, deal with issues that came up, uh, discipline and other in schools. And then about 20 years ago, it started to change where not only did was the expectation that principals would be administrators, but that they would also now be quote unquote instructional leaders, right? And that often meant that principals would become the instructional coaches across the curriculum, across disciplines in their school. Um, and I think not only is it unrealistic to expect to put more burden on an individual when not taking anything away, but I think it's um, the height of insanity to expect that someone could be an effective coach in math, English, science, and history all at the same time. So I think that our work now, I think, is really leading the change in what it means to be an instructional leader. That rather than be the all-knowing, omnipotent figure in the school where you coach everyone and you have the answer, but rather creating the incentives, the structures and supports I keep coming back to, 
for teachers to drive their own learning and to drive the learning of their peers, right? That's a system in which you're constantly improving, you're constantly growing leaders, and you're constantly building a professional culture. And so for me, that's really the future of where our work is going. And we think that it's where the field has to go because quite frankly, this is a lot bigger than just the education of our students for education's sake. As the dynamics of the global economy change and they change rapidly now, there are fewer and fewer jobs available for students with lower level skills. More and more of those jobs are being outsourced to cheaper labor overseas. But quite frankly, for every one of these jobs that are these low skill jobs that are being outsourced, more than 10 are being automated. They're being done by machines. And that's not going to change. That's only going to accelerate. So if we don't build a school system that has the overwhelming majority of students leaving with critical thinking skills, the ability to read critically, the ability to communicate in multiple media, the ability to do more than just procedural math, but conceptually understand that math, be able to garner uh, a set of facts, marshal them to create a persuasive argument. Um, those type of skills are gonna be necessary for the overwhelming majority of students. To me, that's the future of the field, that's the future of education, and focused on leadership, that's the focus of what leadership needs to be able to do in terms of designing their schools. Thanks, Jason, for the great conversation and insights. Listeners, please note that all reports and resources discussed during the podcast will also be attached to the recording. Please visit the NGA Education webpage for these and previous podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening and have a great day.